This is John. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of months. In the meantime, get him out. You are listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast, episode 24. With myself, Hank, from Fire Force Ventures, and Bindu from the Men Among Men Stories podcast. Eh? Before we begin, um, obviously, we have had a bit of a hiatus. For the past five months, we haven't really released any new episodes or done a heck of a lot with the Men Among Men Stories podcast. We are kind of back on the horse, so to speak, and as, as many of you know, with my ventures, um, with Fire Force Ventures... They have finally wrapped up up here in Canada. That is a big reason behind the delays as far as putting out new episodes. While Fire Force Ventures is still on pause as it kicks off operations again in Texas, I have launched a new venture, a new business, Canada Camo. Built on the bones of the former Fire Force Ventures operation in Canada, Canada Camo will be focusing on providing curated military apparel and hard goods largely for the North American market, particularly folks in Canada and the northern United States. Uh, you can check it out right now at camis.ca. It is live at the time of recording this podcast. Some pretty cool products there, including the new tack plaid that I am wearing right You're now. You're a youper. You'll love this stuff. It's a youper. Youper is like a California bro, but from like Minnesota, Great Lakes region. Youper, so, youper is just a guy who likes like wood stuff. So not a Californian. Yes, the exact opposite the of a Californian. A woods bum, not a beach bum. Yeah, yeah. No, what I mean is similar chill, similar chill attitude, but you know, someone who likes to, someone who likes to um, spend a lot of time in the woods, likes to do a lot of outdoorsy activity, like many of our fans, I'm assuming. So there you go. If you're a youper, you're a Canadian, you're a Canuck, you're in the woods of. Washington State or something, or Oregon, whatever, one of those places. Check it out. Um, Canada Camo. It's at camis.ca. C-A-M-M-I-E-S dot C-A. Check it out. Another business we like to always shout out to is the Commando Blog. Uh, They are also revamping after a fairly long hiatus and regular activity. Uh, The Commando Blog is now back in full swing. Providing firearms content from a variety of sources and subject matter experts. You'll find excellent articles about all things firearms related topics, including gear, militaria, combat medicine, fitness, outdoor lifestyles for the youpers out there. I'm going to see how many times I can say youper in this podcast. And even video games and anime. As part of their ongoing revamp, they're looking to bring on more writers. As a creative and collaborative platform for the internet firearms enthusiasts, all Spurgs, SMAEs. Schmees. Schmees. Subject matter expert, right? Subject matter expert. Shmee. Okay. Learn a new word there. And enthusiasts are welcome to share their passions. Not a writer, not a problem. We can guarantee that there will still be some excellent articles that are worth the read. Check out commandoblog.com. That's commando with a K, blog.com. We should also plug ourselves here, in addition to all the other people we've plugged so far. Uh, MenAmongMenStories.com We do have a merch store where we have recently launched uh, a few book offerings, which we haven't done in the past, so it's pretty exciting. We have right now Survival Course, the book that we're actually going to cover today. We have Fire Force by the same author, Chris Cox. 
we also have Peter McAleese's No Mean Soldier, which he covered in basically a three-part series yes. a few months ago. Episodes so, uh, 18, 19, and 20. 18, 19, and 20. So that was a few months ago, but we did cover that. It was super, super cool to actually get to actually interview Peter and obviously break down all of the events of his very long and illustrious military career. Absolutely. So those books, including signed copies, are actually available now at the Men Among Men's Stories merch store at menamongmenstories.com. You can always additionally support us by purchasing a horn mug carved from an actual water buffalo horn with a Rhodesian emblem on it. We put our podcast logo on the very, very bottom because we're not all that important. But it is a very cool mug. Definitely check it out. And you can also support us directly on Subscribestar, as well as a direct donation page on the Men Among Men Stories merch store. Our content will always be free. However, if you would like to support us, we very much appreciate donations. Your, your donations go a long way in helping us with the physical production of the podcast, including all of our audiovisual equipment, uh, podcast interviews, book procurement, and future Men Among Men stories, ventures that we're looking forward to. With that all being said, let's get into the book. And all around came the enemy fire, seeking us out, getting ever closer and closer. Tracers buzzed and arced through the trees over our heads, zinging whip-like, tearing branches and leaves. I wanted to crawl into the earth. I wanted to stand up and shoot down our enemy. It was becoming a barrage and our fire was deafened, dulled by the intensity of the enemy fire. I changed magazines and in a second was again pumping round after round in the general direction of the compound. An occasional figure flashed across our front through the shadows. Where were they firing from? It wasn't that close, surely. Surely we could see them. My mind was now concentrated, focused. Think logically, Chris. Think about it. What will they do next? Either they'll gap it, or they'll soon enough find the range. Or worse, a frontal assault? Not totally unknown. I was shooting all the while and changed another magazine. Anthony was changing magazines on the Bren. Those antiquated, upright mags. Paul was changing mags. Manny was shooting. Christ, I hadn't thought of it. What about mortars? What about rockets? RPGs? Surely it could only be a matter of time before they brought them into play. Gooks always had the fucking things. And a big group like this would have several. RPG-2s and RPG-7s. The intensity of the firing gave no indication that they were likely to withdraw. I made a decision. We would withdraw. It was suicide to stay here. Pull back, you Okies, I shouted. They didn't hear me. Pull back, I repeated, shaking Tim and Anthony on the shoulder. We're moving back a couple of hundred meters. Let's go. That was an excerpt from Chris Cox's work, Survival Course, The Rhodesian Denouement and the War of Self. It is a continuation of Chris Cox's story dealing with his wartime experiences during the Rhodesian Bush War, this time with a focus on his service in the British South Africa Police's PATU, the Police Anti-Terrorism Unit. Survival Course is actually a continuation of... uh, the book, another book, Fire Force, which was actually the first book we ever covered on this podcast. That's our episode one and episode two, uh, which detailed Chris's time in the Rhodesian Light Infantry, which was in many ways a very 
different experience, a very different style of combat, and as far as his living situation goes, extremely different, as we'll see. Now, when we cover Fire Force, again, it was our first and second ever podcast. Uh, we I don't know if we really knew what we were doing back in the day. Yeah, no, audio quality was not great. Yeah, no, it was it was a very fresh attempt. You, you can def- we were definitely am- much more amateurs back then than we were now, than we are now. <laughs> we were still kind of amateurs, but you don't even know words. Yes, we're still learning words. As yeah, we it certainly amateurs. was a very greenhorn uh, first couple of podcasts, but it's a good attempt. There, yeah. there are also audio issues in it, so I think this is a good time to kind of revisit Chris's style of writing. Um, with with this new book, this kind of sequel or continuation of this story, I don't know if you really call it a sequel because it's, I guess it's like a. Are there sequels of bi- biographies? Oh yeah, yeah, no. A sequel can be fiction or nonfiction. Okay, so this, I guess, I guess you would say this is like a sequel. This is like the conclusion, to this, yeah, to the to the whole chronological narrative. Um, so, anyways, the book is formatted in a way where unlike. Fire Force, which is straight, like, chronologically, he's here as a kid getting called up for national service. He's going to leave for South Africa. He doesn't, and then he just serves his time in the RLI, right? It's like this point A to point B story. Um, this this book, in, in kind of a unique way, is formatted where his wartime experience is towards the end of the war from this is around 1979 to 1981, is actually juxtaposed with a kind of flash-forward narrative device where every chapter actually begins with some traumatic incidents that happen... Well, I, I don't know if I would... What would you call them? I Maybe traumatic or difficult incident, incidents? No, I think, I think you got it. Yeah, traumatic. Right. Yeah. Not sure how you could call them much other than traumatic. Well, I have I, I, I kind of struggled uh, to understand what was really going on with with these like flash forwards because he does flash forward to nineteen ninety five and that's why I asked you the question because they're almost like dreamlike sequences. He's he's almost mm-hmm. in this fugue state, so to speak. You know, Breaking Bad reference, right? He's like he's not all there. Uh, whereas like when he's in combat, he's very very lucid. And obviously, all through Fire Force, he's very, very lucid. He's observing yeah. everything that's happening. He's breaking it down, and it's interesting because all these these happenings in 1995, and they're not really revealed, at least in in their entirety, until the very end of the book, um, until the very end of what Chris writes. But uh, you know, spoilers aside, so to speak, in in this <laughs> nonfiction story, mm-hmm. they. He, he was not in a good state of mind, right? In combat, in many ways, is where Chris, as, as a guy that goes through this conflict, is stays lucid, right? Combat, like, almost, like, wakes him up to reality and, and having situational awareness, whereas when he's describing how he's feeling in 1995, it's, it's a blur, right? And in, in the same way, he kind of breaks it, these little chunks in the, the beginning of every chapter... Um, you kind of feel that with him as you're going through it. So, I, I, you know, that's why I had a hard time calling it even, like, traumatic. Because even now, having reviewed the book a few times, 
these are almost like dreamlike sequences. Yeah, no, that's that's a good good way of describing the flow of the book. However, again, as I mentioned, the main events of the book happen uh, between 1979, after the Chris has mustered out of the RLI, to all the way up to 1995, and mm-hmm. kind of everything in between. He talks about it all. About a 15-year period. Yes. Most of that period, of course, focuses on 1979, that last real year of hard fighting uh, under the Rhodesian umbrella before it becomes Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, and then Southern Rhodesia again, and then finally Zimbabwe. Um, Hopefully, if you you are listening to this podcast, again, as as we've stated on previous podcasts, this isn't a uh, market replacement for reading Survival Course. Rather, to the contrary, it should be a bit of a primer for anybody looking into getting this book. Um, mm-hmm. and or anybody who already has the book yes. and would maybe like to just dive a bit deeper into some of the ideas in it. Correct. So, it was actually originally published as Out of Action uh, in probably at some point in like the early 2000s, maybe the 90s. I'm not exactly sure because I... we. Neither of us, I think, actually have a copy. You don't have a copy, do you? Of Out of Action, no. No. So that's it was a, it was a much older publication. I believe it was actually done by the former Paladin Press out of Florida, which doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Or maybe Gallegos Press Publishing out of South Africa. I'm not sure exactly where it was originally published, uh, but it was edited and revised by a fellow by the name of Peter Stiff, who is pretty well known for a few other books he did. Most notably, Top Secret War, Salute Scouts, uh, with none other than Lieutenant Colonel Ron Reed Daly. However, as Chris has mentioned to us, and a few other people have mentioned it to us, uh, a lot of the authors, including Ron Reed Daly, did not have the best business relationship with the late Peter Stiff, who passed away a few years ago, and... Chris wasn't exactly happy with how Out of Action had been portrayed. Uh, The the way that it had been edited, the way that it had been kind of cut down in some ways, and and I guess like fluffed up in others. He wasn't a big fan of that. So this book, Survival Course, was actually published in 2018, which is very recent. Mm -hmm. It's It's almost a complete... Well, it's not a complete revision of Out of Action... Uh, but definitely very different in terms of its tone and and its exploration of what this you know what the I guess the course of this story uh, from 1979 all the way till 95 uh, it takes place kind of going back and forth between a hospital or a series of hospitals and psychiatric offices in Harare in 1995, which again they're kind of uh, showcased or highlighted at the beginning of every chapter and they're like it's like the dream yeah what's your take on it i mean i think you put it uh pretty succinctly but yeah no they're they're like um it's almost like the real not the real story because they're both real stories obviously these all really happen but it's almost like the main narrative of the book is these like the chapter headings which all take place in 1995 and then everything else is being told back through almost flashbacks. That's kind of the narrative choice, I guess, Chris uses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I, I can kind of see that. Yeah, and you keep... Again, it's it's it's, it's interesting. That's why we keep kind of going back to it, because you will, if you get into this text, like, you will see this 
Yeah. You'll notice it pretty quickly. Yes. And of course, the, the events in 1995 have nothing really to do with the narrative of 1979 in Rhodesia. They're, they're like, or the, sorry, the, in the, I guess the Bush War. Which brings us to our second locale, which is uh, Chipinga, or Chiping, Chipengai. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that. It's just a town in Manicaland where he's working. You could say he's stationed there, but he's not really stationed there. And we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. We, we will talk about the BSAP Patu in this podcast. We are going to give context to the late-stage Rhodesian Bush War, how it was administered. Uh, the, the, subtit- the subtext or whatever, subtitle, subtext of this book is called... Subtitle. Sub- subtitle. Subtext is the meaning. Okay, okay. Subtitle is right. the so actual... Subtitle. The subtitle of this book is, is the... Den- Rhodesian denouement, which means like the denouement. End. Denouement. Denouement. It's a French word. See, I don't speak French. I speak American. Anyways, moving on. That's <laughs> so wrong on so ending, many levels. <laughs> the ending. Uh, denouement is is basically like the ending, right? So he's talking about yeah. the, like the the final stages, the final act of mm-hmm. the Rhodesian Bush War, as Chris describes it. So we're going to talk about that part. I think it's actually literally a theater word originally. It? I think it of literally you means... you know that because you know every word and you're a it, theater nerd. It, it literally yeah. means, I think, like the... It comes from, I think, a term for like the last act of a play or something. Okay. Don't quote me on that. I might be wrong, but I believe that's where it's from. <laughs> We're also going to talk about that War of Self, though. Uh, the Denouement aside, we are going to talk about the War of Self because that's the full subtitle, which is the Rhodesian Denouement and the War of Self and it's... It's Chris's own war. Uh, it's it's his battles with drug addiction, mental health issues, and and just these problems that end up claiming so many of his former comrades from the Rhodesian Light Infantry in the years after the war. In fact, it, it can be argued uh, that many more men are lost to these struggles than the direct, high-intensity, close-quarters combat of the war itself. So rather intense topics both of them in their own right we are going to explore those but again the i guess the narrative structure we are going to kind of well we won't go back and forth but if you are getting into this book chris goes back and forth between the hospital in harare and how do you say it chip chipinga chipinga yes chipinga Chipinga, chipangai which is in modern i guess it was still a province back then, Manicaland, which is on the eastern border of what is now Zimbabwe, and that's basically like, it's basically a giant eastern wall bordering Mozambique, right? It's like yeah. the whole border. It's like the entire Mozambique border, basically. So, you know, we're not, we're, we'll get into it in a moment, but you can you can imagine during, knowing anything about the Rhodesian Bush War. So hopefully you have some context about the course of the Rhodesian Bush War going into this. But long story short, the Mozambique border is not a friendly place because a lot of unfriendly people are coming in from that border into uh, the into Rhodesian territory and causing all kinds of agitation and mayhem. So let's uh, before we before we get into Patu itself and kind of talking about this unit that that Chris is a part of because it is rather important to understand the differences with this unit compar- comparatively to the RLI 
which basically is the entirety of Fire Force, right? The whole of Fire Force, yeah. start to finish, is the RLI War, the Rhodesian Light Infantry War, a regular and rather elite unit of the Rhodesian security forces doing Fire Force call-ups, all kinds of cool innovations tactically, hundreds of men parachuting, jumping out of helicopters, chasing communists in the bush. Thick bush fighting, yeah. thick kind of, not necessarily jungle fighting, but certainly that kind of... Warf- yeah, yeah, that kind of warfare. Very, very almost Vietnam, but in Africa. Yes, very. Then lots of lots of men involved, right? Mm-hmm. Lots well supplied. This is a very different war, to say the least. But before we talk about again Patu and the BSAP during this time period, uh, and in, in this geographical region of Rhodesia, uh, because of the fact that it's in some ways a much smaller scale conflict despite being in many ways just as intense in its own rather in its own ways just as intense there are a lot more characters that i guess you or well not characters like real people that you get to know a little better than with fire force whereas in fire force he's operating out of a stick that's part of like a platoon that's part of like a company or company right which is you know, we're talking about 100 men, and then a commando, which is a battalion size, which is like hundreds of men. Um, there's NCOs, there's officers, there's people in other units, there's just, there's there's hundreds of people milling about in, in either in garrison or in combat. Here, he's kind of stuck with about four guys or three guys at a time, at best. And there's other isolated groups of men called sticks, uh, typically four or five men, but his team that he actually describes as quote-unquote the old and the untrained uh, rather ominously when he when he's assigned to lead them um, are made up of a few individuals that when, when Chris kind of shows up at the beginning of the book to this farm um, when Chris shows up to this farm called, I guess it'd be called Middle Savvy. It's kind of complex how the naming conventions go, but I guess this this farmer plantation is a big commercial estate. It's called yeah. Middle Savvy. He goes there after he leaves the regular army, and because of the nature of the bush war, where basically everybody who was a military-aged male who was fit was in the military or law enforcement in some capacity, he's, he's more or less like conscripted into... Uh, BSAP Patu service and is basically stuck in with just three dudes rather than an entire company of men or a platoon or multiple fire force sticks it's three dudes in a very very isolated rural community in Rhodesia towards the end of the war surrounded by an entire border quite literally of Soviet and Chinese trained guerrilla fighters who are actually starting to win the war at this point. That's another thing we'll talk about. So there's a main guy he, he meets right away, Gordy, Gordy Gendanga, who's the only regular cop in the valley, more or less. He's a he's what's called a ground coverage um, BSAP guy. So as, as Chris puts it in the book, uh, lots of ground, very little coverage. Yeah. It's a huge region that this guy is responsible for. The guy is extremely overworked, very underpaid, very underappreciated. 
um, is in charge of various little patu sticks and kind of sending them out, like call, literally calling them in their homes and being like, hey guys, you guys need to go out here and check this out. There's something going on here. There's something going on there. And generally it would be terrorist incursions of some variety across the border, whether that's like stealing stuff, stealing supplies. Literally at one point they rob a grocery store uh, or giving political propaganda lectures, kidnapping people, conscripting people, finding willing volunteers, you name it. Like anything that, that you know, can help their cause, they're coming over for. Um, Gordy's the guy kind of staking out the entire zone, more or less on his own, as the only regular BSAP guy on basically full-time duties. Uh, and he calls up these, these Patu guys who are um, part-timers, so to speak. And Chris is one of them. Because he's an RLI guy, he's made the leader of the stick. Within his stick is a guy by the name of Tim Anderson, a bearded Yorkshire poacher, outdoorsman, and kind of a world traveler in some ways that describes him, marries a Rhodesian, and that's kind of how he gets stuck. I really like Tim. <laughs> Tim, yeah, was, yeah, a, Tim seemed a, like a fun guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, Paul Brown, who is a much older fella, he's in his mid-40s. He's actually half blind from a completely non-functional eye, so he's mid, like one of his eyes doesn't work. He's asthmatic, but somehow this this old fellow, this old timer with one eye, was always able to keep up with the rest of the stick. Uh, Manny Dreyer, who had previously been a Patu stick leader, um, who was replaced by Chris upon his arrival. So the sticks being again these four to five man teams, Chris ends up immediately being placed in charge of the sticks uh, because, well, none of these other guys have military experience, right? And Manny would have had the most experience as a previously, having previously led a Patu stick himself. I forgot to mention, there's also another fella who's rather important to the firepower of the stick, and that's their Bren gunner, Anthony, a.k.a. Ant Field. Uh, and apparently they called him Munda too for some reason. Either called him Munda or Ant, but he was a super big Bren gunner who, as Chris mentions, carried the Bren like a little toy gun. And he later transfers out of the stick and is replaced by a guy by the name of Tom Argyle, who is actually pictured on the cover of the book with the little Patu stick, so that little four-man stick, which is a very, very small unit. And I, I wasn't making a mistake there technically when I mentioned Bren gun. Everybody's probably familiar with the FNMAG, or in Canada, the C6. The Americans would know it as the M240 Bravo. Uh, the BSAP, especially on the reserve side, weren't given the most high-tech kit. They were given World War II-era Bren guns. And uh, that's what Ant carried. That's what Tom Argyle carried. Uh, that's, that you know, just to emphasize this is a very isolated team with perhaps not the best equipment and uh it is kind of a culture shock in some ways from that from the 100 500 man formations of the rli right three commando was hundreds of men at a time to a four-man team with not the best kit in the world in a very isolated part of the country it's it's, it was kind of a shock for me to go from Fire Force to this uh, as, as a reader. And certainly you can imagine it was a bit of a shock, like a culture shock to Chris 
being put in charge of one of these little sticks. So that's his team. There's also a few other guys he mentions um, in, in another Patu stick, because that's like all they have as far as military men, quote-unquote, in the area. Um, Nat Pearsons, Jack, Liss, uh, Jack, A- Jack Lass. No, Jack Ass. No, Jack, it was Jack Lass. That's a typo. Okay. <laughs> Jack, Jack Lass, uh, uh, Van Deventer, Nev Peterson, and Jimmy, D- Jimmy Dawson, Pim, a.k.a. Lank, or Lank, and uh, a guy that kind of hangs out with them at different times named Don Hunslau, who they everybody gets in a bar fight with eventually. In, in, a, in one of the very, very, very few... Uh, chuckle-worthy moments of the book because otherwise it is quite dark. He's being put in this situation where he's very isolated, he is more or less alone, and uh, is responsible for these guys in addition to his responsible uh, responsibilities to his own family. Um, again, Chris now is, well, since his RLI days, he has actually married he doesn't mention his wife a lot in the in Fire Force, but now he, his wife basically expects that he is done with his time in the military. He's just a reservist on occasional call-ups for things in the area, and he's he's a you know she's heavily pregnant at the beginning of the book. He's supposed to be just a regular dad working a regular farm management job, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, here he is, like right away, <laughs> being put back in in, in the as, sticks. As so. the opening quote that I uh, read probably <laughs> indicates, that was not the case. Just being an ordinary dad in a farm. Yes. So those are the guys that uh, that uh, we meet in the book. Some of the main dudes, so to speak. Some of the main men among men. It's a lot easier to relate with these individuals, certainly than the guys in three commando. And I think that's just because in three commando, there were just so many men, right? There were just so many guys in the sticks, in the, in the, in the platoons and the companies. It is a little bit hard to give any exposition to additional guys when most guys get like a few sentences worth, right? Some guys are brought up again, like, like Sergeant McCall and stuff uh, in fire force. But it, it, it very easily, and I think anybody that's served in any military uh, formation, you know, company-sized formations can attest to this. Like, there are, there's just a lot of people, and you don't interact with everybody. You don't interact with every officer. Whereas in this situation in Patu, and it changes the narrative structure in some ways, uh, you actually, like, it, it's like the small, the A-team, so to speak, right? So you, you, you get kind of Chris observing everybody. Which is a bit of a different experience. And of course, the BSAP themselves had a very different war. Uh, formed in 1966 to carry out special duties within the framework of the British South Africa Police. Uh, it had reverted back to a paramilitary role as part of like the whole BSAP going towards a more paramilitary role during the Rhodesian Bush War. And that, that's largely because uh, formerly, despite being basically civilian police officers in Rhodesia prior to 1966, there was a lot of communist agitation in Africa 
in the early 1960s, particularly with the Portuguese Ultramar, the overseas war between 1961 and 74, where all of its African colonies were basically in open revolt. That was Mozambique, Angola, Guinea, and I think that was it, just those three. Yeah, I believe just those three. Right. They were, uh, they were wigging out, so to speak, and... As well, and you know, many people know this Congo crisis, 1960-1965. Uh, sorry, Katanga crisis, and then the Congo crisis. So 60, and then up to 65, we have the Congo crisis. I think at this same time, the British have pulled out a lot of their colonies. Um, Tanganyika, Kenya. Yeah, the yeah. French are pulling out. Algerian crisis is happening. Like Africa's a continent on fire in the yes. 1960s. Yes. So either the old colonial powers have left entirely and everybody is fighting for the leftovers or in the case of Portugal they have not left and the the locals are not exactly happy with that mm-hmm. because southern Rhodesia which was still a British colony at the time was seeing this happening all around them all around their borders uh, the BSAP which had originally been founded as a functionally a a paramilitary force and BSAP of course standing for British South Africa Police uh, guarding the British South Africa company convoy into Rhodesia so not no no relation to like the state of you know the Republic of South Africa later right it was a holdover from the BSAC the British South Africa company Um, these guys were originally basically paramilitaries right they're hired guns to protect the convoy, the pioneer column coming into Southern Rhodesia in 1890. They were like, okay, we're going to go back to our roots, I guess, and get back to our origins. And part of that was forming Patu, which was intended to be more of an elite formation within the framework of the BSAP that could operate independently in these little five, four to five man sticks, optimally a five man stick with a tracker. Um, originally deploying as kind of glorified cops in basically what were police uniforms. Uh, By 1979, the time that Chris joins, um, they're along army lines entirely. So they're wearing camo. They've been given a little better equipment. And just due to the nature of the Rhodesian state being under sanctions, never having enough resources to actually fight and conduct this war. Um, despite being along army lines, there is still a distinct lack of, I guess, uh, what was the word? I'm just thinking like umph. There's a distinct lack of umph. There's, there's something that's always lacking with, with the BSAP PATU operationally. Right, and that's not to like denigrate the guys that served in Pat too, like Chris and all the other me- guys he mentions, but they are recruiting half-blind asthmatics, the old and the untrained, and uh, it almost, pardon the comparison, but it almost gives me kind of like Home Guard or Volkstrom, yeah. Volkstrom vibes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know what you think of that, but no, no, no. That's that's certainly had. something that came to my mind when reading it. Is it's it's uh, now, something like Volksturm is generally the very young and the very old. Yes. This is its mer- very much just the very old <laughs> yeah. and a few yeah. guys like Chris who uh, kind yeah. of are combat vets leading them. Um, yeah, 
I was wondering if you got that vibe too, and it, it like you'll you'll certainly feel it. Yeah. Now again, nothing against the men, and they are really men among men because they do some incredible things with. I mean, I thought at times the RLI had a bit of a shoestring budget, but these guys, I mean, they're they're rocking Brens and yeah, this is alone. <laughs> this is Dad's army, but expected to actually fight like Soviet and Maoist Chinese trained para- and equipped paramilitaries. Yes. Yeah. Who are at this point getting increasingly sophisticated yeah. Yeah. With, with mortars and RPGs. These aren't yeah. these aren't the two or three dudes at the beginning of the war that were crossing the border and you know firing randomly with the AK set to you know set yeah. with their a sight set to the highest. Like these yeah. are su- oftentimes like their their leadership at least are actually like have been sent overseas for training. Yeah. Right? Not just singing the international. These yeah. guys were you know they were slinging lead, and they're mm-hmm. they're getting better at it. Yes, because obviously if they you know survived to this war, uh, or sorry, obviously if they have, they had survived to this point in the war, which is a fourteen year war, a uh, fourteen year conflict, you know they're they're kind of cream of the crop, and they they knew what they were doing, in in every engagement almost, uh, every engagement that. Hit at least Chris with his patu stick. The experience is obviously different for every patu stick, and just because how many rural localities there are in Rhodesia, but for his stick, like almost every single one is disastrous. Even ones where, like, clearly they have superior firepower, they're up against two dudes. Like, it, it, it's always kind of a mess. Yeah. Right. And. Uh, it's impressive that the BSAP Patu guys were able to achieve what they were able to achieve, but definitely Homari. <laughs> Again, they're intended to be elite, but definitely in a place like this, you get like Dad's Army vibes. Yeah, very much so. Chris and his team also operate out of uh, what were called the tribal trust lands, in addition to the Middle Sabi commercial farming plantation. Um, So just to give a little context about these lands, because this is is functionally where a lot of the uh, BSAP guys are operating, or, or Chris's stick is operating throughout the course of this book. These tribal trust lands were functionally reserved portions of land in Rhodesia that were intended alongside like privately owned commercial farms which were really really big really really big properties Um, these tribal trust lands were intended to serve as kind of a a protected community uh, a protected village if you will which go you know that I think there was actually terminology used where it was they were considered quote-unquote protected villages mm-hmm. and, and that terminology and that mindset of kind of putting people in a geographic like basically relocating people into a geographical region and making sure that they have some sort of a outer ring of protection as well as an inner ring of surveillance to make sure they weren't supplying foreign aggressors or agitators basically becoming a fifth column within a state uh this this mindset i mean you could technically go all the way back to the boer war with the the boer concentration camps but in recent memory of a lot of the rhodesian statesmen and soldiers big on their minds was the experience of the malayan emergency where the british had enormous success 
basically forcibly relocating people. Yes, so during the Malayan emergency, uh, in Malaya, a lot of the support, at least initially for the Malayan communists, came from a population of 500,000 Chinese squatters uh, who were landless and kind of just living in the jungles. And basically illegally. Yeah, illegal. They're basically illegal immigrants, right. in, in, except they weren't immigrants. Like, they'd been there for a yes. couple generations, but, like, they were squatting illegally. Um, and what the British under, uh, I think, Sir Major General Gerald Templer, I think that was his rank at the time. Um, no, it wasn't Templer. It was actually Briggs. Briggs, okay. Because Templar was, I think, head of the political... Yeah, he had yeah, full powers, right. yeah. But Briggs was the guy that like kind of wrote this up. Yes, yeah. They basically moved the entire population of Chinese squatters out of the jungle and into, again, protected villages so close the, to the... Right. the, the termino- rest- yeah, the terminology in Malaya was actually new villages. New villages, and yeah. And I think... PV became a, was a Rhodesian like a yeah. if, if I remember yeah. getting that correct close to the rest of the population where the um, British could keep an eye on them Templar actually said uh, Templar actually described it as draining the sea in which the fish swim in because he viewed like these communities in the jungle were open for recruitment and by moving them to uh, well somewhere where they get yeah, again yeah. The outer ring of protection yes, yeah right so again like no one can come in and snatch them away and turn them into communist guerrillas yes right? yeah nobody can come in and also terrorize them into basically uh working against the interests of the british no one can come in and just well i guess communist guerrillas do tend to do this they just tend to randomly attack people yeah they like this happened a lot in rhodesia they were they Oh, you're a collaborationist. Let's shoot everyone in this village. That'll that'll teach them. Yeah. Well, right? it happens when you recruit a lot of your top guys from literal prisons. But anyway, yeah, yeah. The, um... yeah. So, sorry. What do you? What was that a reference to? No, during every communist revolution I've read about, this might not be the case in okay, specifically okay, Africa, okay. but they always open the jails and give the prisoners guns. This is a thing that goes back to yeah. Russia, nineteen seventeen. Okay. A... Okay. No, I, I I get it. I get it. I. I guess you could make that argument because some of these Zandla Zipper dudes were imprisoned at some point. I don't know if it's like the same experience, but yeah, well, I get you I have a lot of violent, already violent guys right. in your yeah. revolutionary group. Well, just an environment like that, like the the psychos thrive. Absolutely, right? the, yeah. Like the you know the the breaking case of war people. Yeah, right. The, I've heard that expression used a lot to describe like Medal of Honor recipients and Victoria Cross people where it's just like they excelled at this and they sucked in the civilian world. Yeah. Uh, it goes both ways. Like with, with you know, if you're a guerrilla, anti government guerrilla of any kind, like mm-hmm. but you're 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 given a gun and some degree of power when you otherwise wouldn't be in the civilian world. Yeah. And you're you know, there's no real rules of engagement if it's for the good of the revolution, right? The rules of engagement are like you propel the revolution. That's your yeah. that's your rule. That's your ROE. Um, you're you're definitely, or at least that's how you interpret the ROE, right? Because that's not officially what the ROE is with communist doctrine. But like you can interpret it like I can do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're gonna get some sickos that will just go into villages and kill people. Yeah. So again, I 
quote-unquote protected village or a new village. You have that outer ring of protection, also an inner ring of surveillance. No one can leave freely to go about because who knows what they're doing. They could be augmenting the enemy. They could be providing intelligence, providing food, providing clothing or ammunition, etc., etc. And it worked greatly in Malaya. Partly, I think, because for many of the Chinese squatters, it was actually improvement to quality of life. Because they were brought into areas where there was at least, like, you know, food and jobs. And they weren't having to live amongst trees. Yes. Um, so, the Rhodesian experience, the, or the mindset, was was very similar, too. Because, a lot, again, as I mentioned, a lot of Rhodesian statesmen had followed this conflict in the news. And followed the tactics and, and the kind of the counterinsurgency mindset. And uh, the, vice versa. And additionally, a lot of Rhodesian security force members who were serving in the Rhodesian Bush War had themselves also served in Malaya and basically practiced the enforcement of these new villages firsthand. In Rhodesia, it was a natural continuation of what was formerly called the Native Land Husbandry Act, which basically regulated all land use and allocation since the 1950s. It, again, Rhodesia was a former British colony, southern Rhodesia, before they went crazy and declared independence with Ian Smith in 1965. They they were um, still a British colony, and in the same way as like Canada, the Dominion of Canada had a reservation system uh, for the First Nations people here, they in Rhodesia had the Native Land Husbandry Act, which allocated land to local rural tribesmen. Now something happened between and it's rather significant to make note of this, between 1890 and even like 1946, right? And that's basically the, the, the population of the country, um, at least the African population, doubled, tripled, and then like quadrupled by, by around 1946. It was something like 700,000 when Cecil Rhodes first arrived with the BSAC in 1890. That population now, of course, seven hundred thousand is like an estimate because I'm not. I'm pretty sure they weren't going around counting everyone. <laughs> yes, but at least back in those days. But by the time like they started doing censuses, they realized there's like, holy heck, there's about there's about like four million, or sorry, two million people in 1946, right around there. And then like by the time of UDI 1965, that's that's about four million. And actually, like the population is. And again, most of this pop this is now everybody, not without no racial breakdown, but most of the population is always African, right? This is Africa after all. Uh, the population is almost double by the end of the Bush War. So it's great that it worked in Malaya with five hundred thousand people that they're dealing with. Now Malaya has a much bigger population than that. Now the five the five hundred thousand people they were moving around these 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 squatters. Um, do not represent a small population by any means. However, compared to millions having to be moved around and regulated, uh, it, it like the situation in Rhodesia could certainly prove to be more of a challenge. And as well, that population is rapidly expanding, whereas these Chinese populations were previously always very isolated, mm -hmm. right? And uh, yeah, I don't think their population exactly ballooned because at the time of recording this podcast, their descendants right now, and it's been about 70 years, only about 1.4 million of them. That's actually not that 
impressive as far as Asian numbers go. Because if yeah. you know anything about it, every, they say everything's bigger in Texas, but it's actually everything's bigger in Asia, including especially population. Yeah. Right? So, like, we're talking 70-ish years since this conflict kicked off, and your population's only, like, tripled. It's That's actually not... So, these aren't people having, like, 19 kids, right? And in the, in the same way, I guess, maybe in the Shona Netabili tradition, it's like more and those are of course the native peoples of Rhodesia at the time um, and what is now Zimbabwe like that's that's custom whereas these Chinese was maybe like I guess three or something right I don't know too much about melee Chinese people but if you look at like this the hard numbers um, this was relatively small as far as yeah. management goes it also right? helped that the the Maoist guerrillas really did market themselves to a particular demographic that was yes. not the majority. That was not the case in Rhodesia where you had two yes, revolutionary they, groups yeah. who appealed to the two majority groups. Yes, it was like yeah. black majority, right? Yeah. like Or black liberation theory and stuff and black power mm-hmm. theory. All, all that stuff working in with the communism which made with with like communist theory which is really good at figuring out slogans and easy ways to communicate to big groups of people and engage big groups of people whereas there were like a dedicated hardline anti-communist cadre of Malayans yes right of Malaysians that were very conservative and traditional and wanted their independence and all that stuff long term but they're like yeah we're not doing it through communism whereas like that block didn't fully I guess there was there were individuals and there were groups and there were regiments but it wasn't like this was like a a voting block mm-hmm. right so you had a much more I think for the at least for the communists and Zipra and Zanla a much more exploitable population and a way bigger one. Yeah, and also they're appealing to the majority, not well, the Chinese communists in Malaysia were generally not appealing to many of the Malays. They were appealing appealing to the Chinese who were a minority. And a lot of people have made uh, comparisons and stuff with like Vietnam, um I mean, you made you made one earlier in reference to like the nature in of reference the to the war. fighting, yeah. right? But the Malaya has been constantly compared to Vietnam because they're both actually mm-hmm. like in in the jungle, going after communist guerrillas that learned how to do what they did from experiences in World War II, like yeah. almost identical. And I think they kind of started around the same time if we factor in the dates of French Indochina. So uh, Vietnam and Malaya are very similar, and um, but again, same thing in Vietnam. You have so many more people, and mm-hmm. that's that's the story with Rudy. You just have so many more people, and this like forced relocation thing. First off, uh, is not a good PR look, right? Technically, if and that's why they never declared the Malayan emergency a war. They always called it a police action emergency because if they called it a war, um, those a whole bunch of other factors, but one. Like technically, like a forced relocation of ethnic people from their homeland it violates the Geneva Convention and other international laws, norms, and customs. Right? Technically, that's not allowed. Right? Well, that's because uh, the history of forced relocation of populations generally does not yeah, go exactly. well. It doesn't go well. Not a lot of people make it to the uh, final destination. Yes. So, yeah. Um, the other thing is, you do need to enforce the 
this rather strictly the borders of where you're actually moving people. The the zones that they're allowed to traverse and freely move in have to actually be enforced. So this thing's meaningless. It needs to have teeth. In with the British, uh, this looked like actually having barbed wire fences around these new villages, right? This actually looked like posting guards with machine guns and dogs and searchlights. Kind of sounds like concentration camp stuff, right? When you when you really think about it. Now it's all it's all terminology and semantics, but you you need teeth to actually enforce to a collective of people or a group of people like we don't want you to move mm-hmm. out of this zone without our explicit ri- explicit written permission because if you're just saying like stay here like no one's going to do that mm-hmm. people naturally like freedom of movement so yeah. so people are going to leave and um th- this is one of the things now we could, um, we're not here to debate the the morality of like locking people up in, in like a big in like a geographical area for the sake of winning a counterinsurgency conflict. However, the Rhodesians actually legitimately didn't have that barbed wire or the dogs or the machine guns to be posted anywhere. They had these four man sticks yeah. <laughs> to, to patrol many 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 acres of of land, and they were part timers at that, right? Because mm-hmm. that they're just the amount of incursions into the country were so great that the regular forces were completely just held up, right? And, and especially after 1979, they were just all doing external ops, almost. Towards the later end of the war, the Salute Scouts, the Rhodesian Light Infantry, Rhodesian uh, African Rifles, Rhodesia Regiment, all these like regular units, the Special Forces guys, they're all going outside of the border, so the internal security was ensured by roving groups of men with uh, antiquated weapons and not a lot, not a heck of a lot of training sometimes. Right? So Rhodesia didn't really have the means to fully act out what made the Malayan example so successful. Mm-hmm. Right? They didn't have the... And also, and when even then, we'll, we'll t- we will talk about... Uh, some heavy-handed punishments because again you do need to enforce this for it to work but the the heavy-handed punishments no matter how often they would be able to enforce them either would turn out to be terrible pr right because yeah. you know, this is as much as a armed conflict as it is a pr battle at the end of the day that's coin it's pr right public relations it's perceptions very bad pr to just randomly shoot people and then have the new story get leaked somewhere right yeah. like you're just randomly shooting people and uh also for anybody living in this situation it just feels like ghettoization right which long term will create resentment and mm-hmm. the, the Malayan emergency because of the fact that it was a small population it wasn't like millions of people kind of locked up in different zones yeah. of the country um there, it was there was less room for resentment. I guess it still was there, right? But it's like there's only so many of us, and we can't go anywhere. Whereas like you had like millions of people, and they had the right to protest and stuff. Technically, even though they get arrested, but it it isn't like a really sustainable thing in the long term. And this had been something that had technically been happening since the 1950s with the native um, land allotments, the Native Land Husbandry Act. So, 
these people were already resentful beforehand. And to this day, like, the question of land in Zimbabwe is still very, very, very contentious uh, with um, Magna Gagwa's government or whatever. His, his name is Emerson Magna Gagwa. I can't pronounce his name ever. The crocodile, right? And previously with Robert Mugabe, it's still in South Africa. It's still a question. Land is always a question everywhere. Yeah, I was about right? to say land. I think is controversial everywhere. Yeah, everyone. Even even in down. even yeah. in countries like ours, which yeah. have been right. quote unquote like first world countries for decades, land is still a contentious so, issue. It's tough. You're trying to do this with a heck of a lot more resources. Still enforce strict, heavy-handed measures. And you have a lot more people to manage. Um, and at the same time, you have frequent raids by Zanla and Zipper forces coming in and causing mayhem. It's not a good time. So Chris finds himself with his small uh, four-man stick patrolling these TTLs and the commercial farm property. Um, he's kind of back and forth between a place called Mutema TTL and the Middle Savvy Farm. And within the farm itself, it has its own like curfew rules in the same way a TTL does them. It, it, it just ultimately, like, this this was kind of doomed to fail in many ways. Um, that And in many ways, Chris kind of recognizes this, but uh, the, the heavy-handed punishments go on. And uh, for, I guess, good reason as far as coin operations go, right? You don't want people bugging off elsewhere, and people have a natural inclination to bug off elsewhere. We're going to read an excerpt from the book, which concerns where Chris and his stick encounter uh, two men who are breaking curfew. It's a very, very tense scene in the book. And, And rather innocently, but... Yes. Chris, Chris, he was whispering urgently. Someone's coming down the path towards us. I think there are two of them. Maybe three. I listened, ears straining. It was unmistakable, the voices of two men, young men, talking loudly, drunkenly, no doubt returning from the Section 5 beer hall. My mind raced. What to do? Lay low and hope they passed by? But if they happened to stumble on us, then what? Shoot them in cold blood? I had to hurry. The others were looking at me for direction, and if we did run and hide, perhaps the movement would be picked out from the compound we'd be compromised anyway. Something snapped in my mind. They must be shot. Finish and Clar. Perhaps a bit Maney's challenge to Gordy Gedanga earlier about shooting curfew breakers. I rationalized it in a split second. They were curfew breakers. They were breaking the law and must be shot. Made an example of. Fuck them. Arrogant bastards. Openly flaunting. Openly violating the law of the land. We'd fucking teach them. About face, I hissed. Do not shoot until I do, understand? The men nodded, nervously licking their lips as they crouched low, fingers caressing their triggers. We could hear them very clearly. They were still out of sight as the path took a bend ten meters or so from our position. Once round the bend, they would only have to take a few paces before stumbling onto our position. I knew we would have to be quick, but then, the decision made, we could not afford to let them get away, wounded or not. Allowing them to escape would cause a loss of face for us, and wounded men can still talk. It was all or nothing. For a brief moment, I was sure I recognized the voices. Young men who were my irrigation boys. Maybe Peter and Elias. I don't know. I didn't want to know. I'm going to let you all read the book and find what happens, but it's a very tense scene. And it's, I think, emblematic of the kind of tough calls you have to make in a situation like that. 
And they're, they're, that's not the first one. There's there's like multiple situations like this. Some of them are easier calls, yeah. right? Um, some of them are way more complex. And that's uh, that's just the nature of, you know, coin, right? Counterinsurgency warfare. It's it's extremely, extremely complex. And if you're going to run through with this Malayan emergency mindset, um, it was like you, you kind of had to. Sometimes you got to shoot guys who don't have guns. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, at le- like you, or, or at least you are... In case that's taken out of context, yes, yes. you sometimes are put in a position where you have to make those calls. Yes. And they're never easy to make no matter what you choose. And yeah. it's it's I think it's very shocking to someone who's never been in that situation to read neither of us excerpts have. like that. Neither of us have. It is and it's like it's it is shocking to read. But it was shocking for me at least. Yes, no, same. But at the same time I understand also what kind of being in a situation like that must be like. And, you know, as I keep saying, just you sometimes have to make nasty calls. Right. And it, it, it like, throughout this, Chris isn't motivated by anything political as he's doing this. It's just, he's not motivated by a love for the idea of Rhodesian independence or the Rhodesian front. In fact, like, many, many times... Often, with the little bit of alcohol in his system, he describes scenes where he's like openly disparaging Ian Douglas Smith and his government and this war, just as much as he's disparaging the the quote unquote arrogant bastards that are the curfew breakers and and communist forces and yeah. all that. Um, I think this came across in Fire Force that you know they're they're not like they're not in it for the politics. Yeah, Chris Cox is not a. Like some sort of stereotypical Rhodesian super patriot, I guess he's a uh, he, he's there to do his job, and that's it. Yeah, that's where it ends. So it is ultimately like the political leadership at the time that was telling them like these are the calls. Right? Mm-hmm. These this is this is what's happening. This is why you're doing it. You don't do it. Like people will legitimately die. And, and more often than not, um, after an engagement uh, that th- his patu stick has, not necessarily in the case that you just read, but in in many of them, like you'll see that there was like multiple AKs. They're they're doing like crazy stuff because they the by the especially by the end of the war, uh, all the terrorist cadres and the communist cadres that were coming into Rhodesia were getting quite brazen, and. It, as a result, the enforcement of the the you know the Malayan style enforcement got more and more heavy handed, more and more heavy handed as a result, right? So, Chris doesn't actually address all the other politicking that's happening between 1979 and 1981 because a lot was happening at this point. There was a temporary like attempted ceasefire, and then there was a Zimbabwe Rhodesia settlement, and then. Finally, there was a ceasefire, and Lord Soames came over, and Lord Carrington was involved at some point in discussions, and there was, like, all this back-end stuff. Ian Smith traveling everywhere, traveling... I think he actually traveled to the UK at this point, and he traveled to South Africa. Vorster was involved. Like, everybody. It was a lot geopolitically, and a lot as far as um, 
Cold War politics goes. Absolutely. Happening in the background. Chris does not care about any of this. It's He kind of mentions it in passing that it's happening, but he is very caught up trying to juggle his responsibilities as a farm manager, um, which is this like civilian work and trying to be a father. He doesn't exactly do the best job at it. He's somewhat distant just because, again, he's still getting call-outs, right? He think, he, he's in this mindset like, I don't want to be in constant combat anymore and more often than not he's out in engagements in many ways that are even more complex than combat they're 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 like police actions where lethal force is almost mandatory in in every case right after he's in the bsap but that that doesn't mean he's ever had any like law enforcement training or Mm -hmm. use of force training it's just like you kind of have to shoot first and let the answers reveal themselves mm-hmm. right uh, and more often than not it's the return gunfire and it's just it, the civilians everywhere right and a lot of these guys that he's shooting at uh, or getting engagements with or whatever are people that either work with him or uh, Africans that work with him or know him in some capacity in in one instance, he gets into a fight, a gunfight with a bunch of dudes, and he finds out his the bartender for all the guys that had served them drinks like the night before is, has actually been kidnapped. And he's like, "Stop shooting, you guys! Stop shooting at these guys! You're gonna hit me! Like, stop, stop, stop!" Right? Like, it's uh, what was it? Like the poor guy Wellington. Mm-hmm. And the next day, like the guy still pours Chris a drink. Like, thank God you did not shoot me, sir. <laughs> Uh, Glad you got bad aim. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's um it's a really tricky situation. Uh, Chris isn't following any of the politicking that's happening in the background because he's so wound up in all this happening, right? Mm-hmm. The growing popularity of of Zanio and Robert Mugabe is creating the increasing uh, radicalization of the populace. And there's actually uh, an excerpt here that I will read that describes again. Chris doesn't really talk about the political situation, but there are these flashpoints where you can see the kind of larger picture that's evolving throughout the country. Then the oddest thing happened. I heard shouting from the hut where Manny had said the two gooks had taken cover. We crouched instinctively, weapons trained. There were two voices shouting in Shona, shouting defiantly, incoherently. I picked up the occasional phrase among the babble. Pamberi ni hondo! Forward with the war. Viva Robert Gabriel Mugabe. Viva Zanla. Manny was at my side, gaveling excitedly. I knew it. They're in there. Looks like they want to go down guns blazing. I nodded in agreement. I reckon they know they're trapped. They've seen us coming. The thought briefly crossed my mind that I should, perhaps, try and get them to surrender. But I dismissed the idea. For what? You want to do it, Manny? I asked. A grenade, probably. He nodded, his Adam's apple bobbing hard as he swallowed. Frag or white foss? I dug out my M962 fragmentation grenade and handed it to him. Whatever. Take this as well. You might need a few. We'll cover you. Manny sank to his belly and, like a snake, leopard crawled towards the door of the hut. There was only one voice shouting now, almost drunkenly. Fuck you, Ian Smith. Fuck you, Bishop Mazurea. Passine sellouts. Down with sellouts. And then a cackle of defiance, followed by the loud ranting of a seeming madman. So this is where they've trapped two gorillas inside a shed. 
Yeah, they've, they've shot them and they're wounded. Yeah. Right? And they still and, have their weapons on yes. them. Yes, and instead of surrendering or just, like, trying to shoot them, they start screaming political slogans. Yes. Which is not something I think you'd see earlier on in the war. Like, there's a lot... Maybe, but it seems that the people involved now are a lot more idealistic and a lot more ideologically motivated, and there's more of them. Yes. Mm-hmm. And by the way, these guys, despite... In, in the gunfight, you know, we didn't read it from the book uh, directly, but initially the the patu stick gets the drop on them, right? These guys are giving a political rally or lecture, basically trying to convince all these tribes people that communism is great, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And then Muzurero uh, is a sellout. Yeah, Mount Muzurero is a sellout because this is, at this point, Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. Again, Chris is not, he's still, all he knows is he's BSAP, Patu, he doesn't know what that. He knows kind of what's going on, but it's just you know white noise in the background, right? So, anyways, the the Patu stick gets the drop on these guys, and um, it normally, like, I think in any any sane context, as, as a even like with soldiers of professional armies in the modern day, if you got bumped. While your weapon was slowing your back and you're doing something very administrative, you're, like, you're, you're basically giving a PowerPoint lecture. That'd be the equivalent of like today, a soldier's like giving a PowerPoint lecture. Everyone's sitting there, and you just got shot randomly, right? To have the will um, to not only fight back after you know getting shot because <laughs> both these guys have been hit, they just didn't die, right? But you are under fire from a but but appears to be a superior force. By the way, this is happening at night, and you don't have night vision because I don't think anyone had night vision in Rhodesia. So mm-hmm. you don't have any night vision equipment. You just got shot. You're bleeding. You're still being shot at, and um, to have the will to like fight back and at the same time still shout political slogans to inspire all your other comrades out there, all those other people listening to this gunfight. Uh, Shows a level of dedication, to say the least. Yeah. Right. These these are these are serious dudes, and um, they're. I think Chris does mention like he goes over, he checks their kit after they they do they chuck a grenade inside the hut and eventually end up. You know they get these two dudes. They check them and their their kit is like on point. This isn't early on in the war where there were photos I've I've seen them where the guys were are wearing like duct taped. Equipment and yeah, mag magazines and jean pockets and stuff, and certainly that was still happening. But these guys were were kitted out. They had full on the chest rigs with ammunition, and they were fixing for a gunfight. They got one. They didn't win it, but like they they were willing to like lose that gunfight just to kind of send a message. Mm-hmm. And they were still willing to send the message right till the end. So that's uh that's very you know pretty pretty damn fanatical. Right, as far as um, war fighting goes, and uh, yeah, you don't see that. I guess you don't see that as much at the in the early stages of the war. Mm-hmm. Right? These guys are getting better at the job, and they're getting more fanatical. Uh, on top of that, like getting better. Um, in this instance, they do get have a little bit. There's a little bit of return fire. The first contact you mentioned, there is a quite a bit of return <laughs> fire in that first contact that, that we started up this podcast with. Um, but they're on, on top of just being more ideologically motivated. 
uh, they've got far better equipment than again it's been 14 years since the, the stream of equipment's been rolling into the country right so they now have heavier ordnance than they did in the past they are more dedicated better kit and they're fighting against increasingly isolated patu sticks that are or or just in general guard force or other little units patrolling bigger and bigger swaths of the country uh, they've got very very good kit and um the firefights get pretty sketchy as a result. We are going to describe one such sketchy contact. Time stood still for a few moments. Silence. Then another rocket, another furious explosion, this time behind us. I squirmed deeper into the earth, burying my head face down in the dirt. They were finding the range. The rocket launcher knew what he was doing. I perversely admired him for it. I wasn't afraid, though my heart was pounding my chest. I was thinking rationally. What could we do? I peeped through the strands of grass to my front. Little figurines could be seen, swarming among the rocks on the ridge. The angry pop-pop of automatic fire from the copies could be clearly heard. This was of no concern. I was not worried about the AKs at that range. Too far, even for an expert. But the RPGs, that was different. Another explosion, this time perhaps a mere 20 meters or so behind us, testified to that. And mortars? My dread. Mortars would be infinitely more devastating than the rockets in this terrain. So yeah, that's, I mean, they're in a gunfight with some guys on a far hill, and they're just being blasted at with RPGs. And then mortars. And then, yeah, and then potentially mortars. And these guys know what they're doing. They're not blasting randomly. They're yeah. they're finding their range, right? Yeah. They're zeroing in. They're, uh, they're also, like, you know, on flay fire from like towards a defilade high ground got rocks as cover yeah and eventually what, not good like, for explosives yeah, like they have like the, this little patu stick has to fight its way you know battle of uh mount of defensia la defensia or whatever style or whatever what's another mountain battle there's a bunch of monte casino battles. yeah monte, monte casino or whatever monte casino style they have to go up this it, i mean it's yeah like you say it's a big hill but it's it's really rocky, so it's like shale almost, yeah. and they got to climb up this this Kopje, this hill, and yeah, well, Kopje is like an island of rock. Yeah, so yeah. it's just rocky hill thing that they got to climb up, and by the time they get up there under fire, the guys have left, right? And uh, <laughs> they've just had a really bad day, and it's a miracle that they all survive the engagement. But it was like it was just we're gonna return fire and kind of section attack our way up this hill. Uh, hike up there and there's nothing up there and all they can do is just hey can we get they actually do call for it during this contact like can we get fire force right like chris is desperately on the radio like get fire force down here get regulars get some helicopters get the air force get everybody and then on, on the radio it's gordy right gordy gundanga is like no no we we can't they're busy they're busy with other contacts good luck fellas yeah <laughs> right so uh, it it is a miracle that these guys were able to get out of this, and and at the same time with these guys getting better, they are getting very brazen that their attacks of, and soft targets like civilian convoys are getting hit quite often. Um, he encounters one such instance when he's kind of off duty from he actually secures a few days leave from official BSAP duties where they just they can't call him up right 
Uh, he's with his wife, who's heavily pregnant, and with a few passengers hitting ride, hitching rides with them, including a, a, a quite interestingly, a female Polish resistance veteran who actually comes in great use uh, as they're traveling along because they get bumped in this in this convoy where they're trying to drive to um, one of the bigger cities for his wife to visit a, a gynecologist for because you know she's like eight months pregnant, right? Um, they get bumped, and his wife is eight months pregnant. She's freaking out. Uh, Chris has to carry her out of the car, and one of the girls that's actually hitchhiking with them is a is a schoolgirl who was orphaned by a terrorist attack. So Chris feels bad or whatever, gives her a ride in town, and they're they're taking they're taking rounds, right? And uh, Chris sees like the only guy initially responding to the gunfire and RPGs going off and the rounds splashing around them. The only guy is this lone BSAP guy, seemingly in a panic, with a CZ handgun out, <laughs> firing from the prone with his handgun in a complete panic, right? And just, just losing his mind, yelling, contact front, and, and all this stuff, but nothing, you know, he's not hitting anything and just... He's just shooting his gun randomly. Run. He'd like run around and like direct people to like get out of their vehicles, and then he'd like get down and prone again and shoot. So he's just that's like the only guy defending them. So he he runs off with his wife um, into this ditch, and she's like about to like give birth. That's how bad this is. And the the little little girl is still a little orphan girl is panicked and still stuck in the car. Like she won't come out. So the, the super brave lady. Unfortunately, like we don't get her full name. I don't think. Chris really even remembers it because she was just like a lady who happened to live in Rhodesia. Her husband was a veteran of the Battle of Monte Cassino, another Polish soldier, and uh, she had been in the Polish resistance uh, apparently and had been highly decorated. You know, tough lady, right? Probably like in her 60s at this point. Ran through like the machine gun fire, pulls this girl out of, um, pulls this little orphan girl out of the vehicle and like runs back into a ditch so, you know, this is called the Men Among Men Stories podcast, but, like, shout out to that lady. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Women among women. Yeah, women among women. And, uh, yeah, and then the whole time, um, she's, uh, she's like, consoling this girl and stuff and has, has no issues. So just as everything is, like, falling apart in this contact, and Chris, like, he, I think he has a, he just calls it a, a an FN, and he, he refers to... Both it's a little bit confusing because he refers to both his FN service rifle, like the FAL, as an, as an FN. He also has a shotgun that happens to be an FN. So it's a little confusing. You know, he interchangeably describes them, and he's using the FN when he's hunting the, the shotgun FN, mm-hmm. right? Fabrique Nationale, a Belgian company. So he's uh, he's got an FN, but like I'm presuming it's his shotgun, and he's like, I can't do anything with this. Like uh, wh- whoever's hitting us is far enough away they know what they're doing and it looks like they're hitting us from the rear and he peeks over in the rear and there's this pretty cool uh, again Men Among Men stories just a little nod to this fella who he never is able to figure out who the heck he is but um, Captain Captain Rhodesia is over there in the prone firing randomly into nothing <laughs> with his CZ uh, he looks over to his rear the rear of the convoy and he sees this this lone old ass man, right? Who's a who's a who's a BSAP reservist, right? He's he's like uniformed, but he's he's a super old dude. Like you can tell, like features on his face is a wrinkly old 
guy who who probably saw stuff at the Somme or something for all he knew. Uh, and he looks back and he's standing there alone on the back of a truck. Uh, from the book. I saw the elderly reservist manning the gun on the back of the pickup, single-mindedly, fearlessly standing to his gun, blasting and blasting the enemy across the rover. For a moment, I was filled with admiration for this old man, standing there, so coolly returning fire. And then he kind of snaps back to reality. Like, his wife's like, I'm gonna give birth, and all, all this. I'm going to live. She, she ended up being fine, thank goodness. But, like, it was... Yeah. But, that yeah, it was just this lone machine gunner. Dun, 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 you know, holding yeah. back the hordes. <laughs> and eventually, like, the the, the, um, the the Charlie Tangos, the communists, they, they break contact because they're like... We don't want to mess with this this machine gunner. He's yeah, he's, he's clearly he's, out for blood. Yeah, so he was he was literally just everybody had like run out into the ditch, got away from their vehicles because the vehicles were like the main target, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the windshield was like getting smashed and stuff. They were shooting the tires, right? So everybody was like hiding on the side of the road, trying to get away from the vehicles. And this one lone guy was just there in the rear, holding them back. Which is, which is pretty impressive. But Chris never got the guy's name or whatever because they just rolled into town and the guy went off probably to do another convoy, right, for all we know. So shout out to that guy. But as you can tell, in case you couldn't tell, rather, like, the, the, the situation is deteriorating in 1979. It's it's not looking good. Um, and on top of that, there's just some kind of, despite the fact that he's not a regular soldier, there is some green weenie stuff. You know what I mean by green weenie? Like, I'm guessing it has to do with inexperience. No, no, no. Like it's like a it's like a term for I don't know if it's like a it is kind of a Marine Marine Corps term that's been co opted by the Canadian military. But basically, it's like it's a combination of like the long arm of bureaucracy plus the harsh discipline of the military in in the manifestation of a weenie. Which is a synonym for penis, a cock, getting rammed up your behind, green weenie. It's like a it's like a uniform one hitting you in the back. So you can refer to a green you know a green weenie can be like oh man just the, you know the sergeant you know yell sarge freaking yelled at me today for this or that just the green weenie at work bro. It could also be like. Oh my goodness! The, the the you know Veterans Affairs told me to go kill myself. <laughs> just, that's oh just that's just the green weenie, bro. That's the yeah. green weenie. The green weenie is just it's big. Yeah, <laughs> it is really big. It is green, and it comes for all, right? So that yeah. so Rhodesia seem like the Rhodesian military is, like security forces tend to be a fan of the green weenie. I mean, I, A.J. Balam talks about that in his book, another book that we've covered, The yeah. Shore Operator. I guess Chris talks about it too a little bit during his, his training with the RLI. Like, there is a little bit of green weenie stuff, but there is some very stupid green weenie stuff by the end. Even though they're, like, losing the war politically, right, on all fronts, despite winning all their firefights, they are, like, still losing this war for all intents and purposes. Um, he actually gets ordered with his stick to do retraining with this guy by the name of Bill Bailey, who's a World War II veteran with a long-range desert patrol. He's this crotchety old man, very, very hardcore, and puts them to their paces again. So they basically redo their selection course or, or basic training 
for Patu. Um, of course, Chris doesn't initially have to do one when he gets in because it's like, oh, you are RLI, you're good to go. Come on in. You could just start operating. It's 1979. No one cares anymore, right? Generally speaking, Patu guys will actually need to do a selection course to get on, but Chris is kind of just let in, and he actually gets officially put through his paces by Bill Bailey at, like, the end of the war, and I think they only have one contact after that. Like, it was, like, one more, like, call-up with contact with Charlie Tango's. That's it. And uh, still, right up until the end, they're, they're, they're exercising some green weenie stuff. And uh, the green weenie does manifest, like, he just gets called. He's, like, in the middle of dinner or something with his wife or doing something yeah. with his kids. And it's like, call up, you know, Charlie Tango's here or there. Go there now. Right? And, uh, or it could be like he's like on a hunting trip, he just gets back. I'm like, oh, contact, Charlie Tango's here, here, and here. Get going. Right? He actually, I think he misses the birth of his, of his first son because of, yeah. because like his, uh, his compassionate leave expires. Right? And, uh, he's just like, well, wife's still in hospital. She hasn't gone into labor yet. I'm, I gotta go back. So he ends up having to go back. So, as we mentioned, the Rhodesians are losing the war. And eventually, I'm not sure if you call it a settlement was reached, but Rhodesia reverted back to British colonial control for about, like, months. All of a hot minute. Yeah. And um, then elections were held, which were largely seen as very uh, mass voter intimidation, but also were emblematic of the changing uh, country in which Robert Mugabe's uh, ZANU party, which was the political wing of the armed ZANLA faction, I think they won a majority? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if it was a sweeping majority, but they, they certainly got in. And now, you actually corrected me earlier today when we were talking about this. I, I figured that kind of stuff started going to to shit on day one after Robert Mugabe and the communists took charge, but actually a bunch of uh, foreign money started pouring into Rhodesia after 15 years of sanctions, so a lot of people actually didn't leave immediately. It was There were kind of a few years of peace after the war. Um, but there, it certainly the new government certainly wasn't uh, a fan of dissent, and as time went on, it got more harsh and more repressive. And there were revenge killings of uh, people who had served in the Rhodesian forces, some uh, Rhodesian African rifles, generally not ordered by the government, but often by people who kind of saw themselves as sort of agreeing with Mugabe's ideology. And Chris, later in the book, towards the end, actually has a very unpleasant experience, him and his... A stepfather with father-in-law, his father-in-law, yeah, with basically Zanu thugs, uh, and I will read an excerpt from that. Well, before you, before you get right into the excerpt, he's the, just to give a little context of the guys. They're CIO, right? So CIO was actually established by the Rhodesian Central Intelligence Organization, right? Discount CIA. Basically, it was the secret police apparatus of the state. They were kind of extrajudicial judicial in many ways. They operated outside the framework even of like the security forces. They often butted heads with the security forces. Led by this guy by the name of Ken Flowers, who 
very interestingly was in charge at the time of this happening. Okay, I got to mention him. And without question now, even though there's no smoking gun, but almost without question, based on all of the you know circumstantial evidence and stuff and the anecdotal evidence that we have now, more than likely was an MI6 asset, a British asset to some capacity. And, of course, despite the fact that he served as Ian Smith's quote-unquote secret police chief, Mugabe kept him on because he was good at his job. Uh, and he wasn't a very, perhaps, ethical or moral figure. Um, I have his book. I have yet to read it because I'm presuming it's going to be all bullshit. <laughs> but uh, I, I do want to, you know, that is maybe something we'll cover. It's a little side. It's more like Cloak and Dagger. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need a Cloak and Dagger podcast, but any, or someone can cover it. But yeah. uh, it's a little pr- outside the parameters of our podcast. But this is the context that these guys are. This isn't happening to everybody. I gotta emphasize that too. This is just because Chris is unlucky. So this isn't happening across the country, but this is starting to happen. The following day, we had more visitors: two black men in civilian clothes from CIO, the Central Intelligence Organization. I knew the second they were let into the cell what it was about. The 18-inch-long section of rubber hose made that quite clear. They were both slightly overweight. The one with the boyish features wore a perpetual smile. The other, slightly balding, held a revolver loosely in the one hand. Colin gasped in fear, his breathing fast and shallow. He shrank to the floor, and for a second I thought he'd had a heart attack. I was shaking, but hoped it didn't show. Fuck them, I kept telling myself. The two black men were talking to each other in Shona. I could understand some of what they were saying. The gist that this Morunga, this white man in special branch, was being too soft, looking after his own. A sellout. And how these stupid uniform branch Mapolisa had blown everything by fucking up the docket. Well, perhaps one last crack? The beatings that followed were done more out of malice than anything else. Perhaps a release of frustration. Perhaps a release of frustration. I accepted the blows from the rubber hose with as philosophical, with as philosophical an acceptance as I could muster. I tried not to cry out, but I suspect I did. All the while attempting to look the baby-faced goon in the eye. I remember the spittle at the corner of his mouth. I remember his spit in my face, warm and smelling of beer. He did not beat me about the face or head, but across my body across my buttocks and the tops of my legs, where it wouldn't overtly show. Colin, still crouched in the corner, shielding his head with his arms, took a barrage of blows and kicks, crying out, screaming in anger and pain. We were perhaps fortunate. There was no interrogation, and it was over in minutes, but as a parting gesture, the two apes dragged Colin by his beard and thrust his face into a shit-filled latrine. "'Now you eat shit, comrade,' The one laughed as he rammed the head down. And then they were gone, laughing as the door swung shut behind them. I don't know how many hours we lay motionless on that cold cement floor. My body was stained with excruciating pain. The bloodless wells now purple and angry. Colin hadn't moved and was lying face down by the toilet, sobbing great heaving sobs. I dragged myself to my feet and with the putrid blanket turned him onto his side, and tried to wipe the filth from his face. It was matted in his hair, in his beard, in his eyebrows, it was in his mouth. So by the way, I should mention, he's the charge he's actually arrested for 
is illegal possession of a firearm. Because they're starting to confiscate all the guns towards the end of the war. Um, they, or, sorry, this is the war's over now, right? And they're, they're starting to confiscate firearms. Wheat barns of war. He actually like yeah. writes it the way that they're described by these uh, CIO guys and these Zimbabwe National Police dudes. And it's... It's not like this. Is, this isn't like a huge wild scale thing. As it happened, like three years later, an event called the Gakura Hundi happens, where tens of thousands of people are actually killed and many yeah. more are detained and tortured and stuff. As, as uh, Mugabe cracks down on his mm-hmm. various political rivals, his, his African ones, including guys that had basically fought alongside him during their quote unquote war for independence, the Rhodesian Bush War. So. Uh, it's not as bad as later crackdowns, and I know there was an even cr- like worse crackdown in the '90s. I think it's just called like the terror, and then obviously hyperinflation, 2008. Like Zimbabwe hasn't been a uh, very rosy story since '84, but um, it's starting to happen. It's not huge scale, uh, but you know, Chris unfortunately just kind of through bad luck because his father-in-law actually had an illegal gun, I guess. Like, because in Rhodesia, the law was like, yeah, you could just have firearms if you need to protect yourself, whatever, right? Especially if you're, like, a reservist. Uh, his his father-in-law actually did have a gun because he was, like, related. They're like, oh, we're going to get his, like, closest, like, male relative. So he just happened to be caught in the crossfire. It wasn't actually for, well, maybe, but, like, Chris suspects it was likely just because he was related to this guy. Right, not necessarily because he was a rabble rouser or like mm-hmm. a huge uh, proponent of Ian Douglas Smith. There just there was a little bit of a lingering fear. Mm-hmm. But uh, that being said, um, there's you know Chris doesn't have a lot of animosity towards the the men that he actually engages with in combat. Um, he's not a big fan of the ideologies. He's actually not a fan of any of these ideologies, not a fan of Ian Douglas Smith's approach to the whole thing. He thinks that Smith likely prolonged the war. He's not a fan of Robert Mugabe either, right? In, in that the guy definitely prolonged the war. He caused yeah. the damn war. So, like, obviously he's not a fan of the political leadership that sent them to war. And there's there's kind of um, a, a rather interesting incident that happens. We won't read it directly from, from the book, but... Uh, he one of his former comrades in the Rhodesian Light Infantry in in, in the eighties um, lands on his lawn in an Alouette helicopter and he's like, "What the heck's going on here? Uh, more more Mugabe games? Let's see." And it's actually a full Fire Force complement of men, and they're fully decked out right in Rhodesian camo. And a white officer comes out and he's like, "Who's this guy?" And he looks over and he sees this guy with Captain Pips on his shoulder. And he's like, holy shit, that is Charlie Norris. Last time he saw Charlie, he was a lowly trooper, the lowest rank in the Rhodesian Light Infantry. He had had a buzz cut, forcibly, and was being detained and being thrown in the detention barracks at Salisbury for 28 days for being asleep on duty. So uh, (laughs) this poor kid who was doing his national service, last he saw him was like, getting carted off to jail for being a slave. Young, young, young guy. Now he was like a captain in the New Zimbabwe National Army and was actually uh, commanding a, a unit hunting after Renamo, a leftover anti-communist group in Mozambique 
that the Rhodesian government had previously supported, and obviously Mugabe did not support. Yeah. So uh, they Renamo was causing all kinds of mayhem because they were kind of a spent force by this point. A lot of their foreign aid had been cut off from various anti-communist factions. They were kind of just like a stray dog with an axe to grind. So, so Mugabe was chasing after these guys, and... Um, yeah, Charlie Norris is like, hey, like I'm a captain now in this new one commando battalion, which basically was just the RLI. They just like renamed it and integrated Africans into the unit, right? And uh, alongside him was his second in command, this guy named Fletcher, who's a black guy who was a former uh, terrorist who had fought actually against the RLI at the very famous Raid of Chinmoyo. So his wife wasn't happy with this at all because his, his wife, Carol, um, had had a brother killed in action, another brother uh, severely, severely maimed by a communist landmine. She was not happy with a quote-unquote uh, ex-ter in her house because he's like, they're all the same, they're all communist rats and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. She was not happy with this. But Chris is like, you know what, I have nothing against, you know, we both shot at each other, you know, at some point, probably, and this guy fought at Chimoyo, right? He's probably been through some shit because, you know, for those that know about the sequence of events at Chimoyo, the Rhodesians bombed the ever-living daylights out of it. I think it's Mozambique, and then the RLI swept in, cleared all the trenches, killed everybody. So this guy fought there, like he he went through a lot. And Chris is like, it's great, and the three of them got got drunk as hell because <laughs> they're staying the night as they're going, you know, departing to the next. Um, rendezvous point or whatever so if all these dudes there stayed the night and uh yeah charlie fletcher and chris had some drinks and reminisced and they're all they all realized like man we we all do have the same uh we we all have had like the kind of the same experiences of, of just hardship right and they they reminisced about all of it and it's those like few moments that and it, it, it's those very few moments that Chris kind of feels alive again after, or really just lucid again after the the, the BSAP Patu days. Um, everything else in his life kind of starts to degrade, uh, largely because, as we mentioned, there he was drinking with these guys, and that's actually kind of because he he's been developing a drinking problem throughout this whole process, to the point where he's in the middle of firefights and he's like taking a swig of brandy. And that like getting shot at, right? It's it's starting to get bad, and he doesn't have this war anymore to keep him kind of alert and switched on. As much as he hates it, mm-hmm. it's it's almost the thing that's keeping him like aware. And he's just he's he engages in business ventures that fail. He engages in farm ventures that fail. He comes off as very antagonistic at times with people. Um, he is reliant on also marijuana. That's another thing he becomes more and more reliant on, and then. Eventually, marijuana doesn't give him quite the edge he needs, so he starts he starts popping a bunch of pill, different pills and cocktails and mixtures, um, just to keep himself kind of at baseline, right? Uh, and it's 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 not like it's an overnight process of like this is, oh my god, this traumatic thing happened. It's it's just this constant this this like grinding tension in his life, right? Where it's always there, and there's this there's this like. Uh, there's there's this I guess demon that's always like following him around, right? It's not one incident. It's not it's not even like the culmination of incidents. It's just like his personality's changed, right? 
There's a reason this book is called The War of Self. Yeah. And I mean, we'll try to have Chris on one. Oh yeah, no, we will. To uh, we to talk to talk more about some of this personal stuff. We will, yes. But yeah, it is. This is a dark book to read, and it's not yeah. just the fighting and the killing. It's a a man going through a private hell that's both part of all that yeah. and separate from it at the same time. Yeah. Again, as much as he hates like combat, it's the thing almost keeping him lucid, right? And when yeah. he leaves it, he has to do other things that to to you know keep himself aware. And there's there's just many dark moments in the book that mm-hmm. We we obviously can't get through all of them, and uh, but it's just this as we've described this whole process of of the con the the, 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 the chronology of this conflict. Um, uh, Chris is starting to lose it, and drinking, drug use. Eventually, he sees as well around him all his former buddies in the RLI. More of them are dead as a result of drug use and alcohol uh, abuse, or road accidents generally on motorcycles this is something Chris talked about when we actually interviewed him um, I think last year right yeah and if yeah. if you actually go back to our very first podcast I think we opened with a quote from the beginning of Fire Force which is a list a list basically of his buddies and how they've died and most and most of it have been like accidents yeah. that were either unintentional or like almost suicidal in nature yeah, not not, yeah. not combat. Yeah, it's not combat or being murdered. It's like yep. it's a lot of its accidents generally caused by and suicides caused by just in many ways just a this grinding like lost men, yes. grinding tension. And uh, at the same time, like as he's he's gone through the war and he gets like tortured in, in prison rather briefly. It's a few days, but yeah, it, it does, still not like, fun. It, yeah. it does like you know impact him in the same way that the con. It just it's just constant, right? This this like tension in his uh-huh. soul almost. Uh, he's looking around this country now, and there's uh, you know I'm sure a lot of people can relate to different situations, but that are rather similar. There, there's a lot of war profiteers. There's a lot of quote unquote carpetbaggers in the new Zimbabwe. Uh, people that have shown up to the country now because it's oh it's getting all these foreign investments cool it's time to start a new business right here and oh yeah so many people have died I'm going to build a thing right on their graves essentially right it's like great like all these people just died in this war cool like I'm I'm going to go there now and I guess the new army is going to need hats and stuff and I'm going to start selling hats and there's all these big like fortune 500 corporations from north all over the world that are just coming in and buying up all the property and stuff and giving everybody a low-paid job, selling everybody stuff, you know, bringing in McDonald's and Walmart or whatever. I don't know if Walmart... Would they have had American corporations? It's like a Soviet-backed <laughs> well, well, state at this point. Technically, yeah. because the international sanctions had True. stopped. Yeah. Right? And Mugabe was nominally a communist, but we all know how he turned out yeah, a bit of a kleptomaniac. Like there was a lot of just foreign investment mm-hmm. coming in. I don't know if it was as dramatic as McDonald's or Walmart opening up everywhere, or Starbucks, mm-hmm. but like you get the idea. Like there's just a lot of people. Like oh cool, like we can get mining rights now. Mm-hmm. Great, because what happened to the last guy that mining rights blown up in a landmine? Yeah, right. And it's just like cool mine. Yeah, mine buying up pennies on the dollar rate. Right? Stuff like that was happening. Uh, he he straight up calls them carpet baggers, and it gives him 
it, it like it, it brings him back to when he was it brought Chris back to when he was in high school when he kind of had socialistic he calls it straight up communistic tendencies starting to resurface uh, he refers to these corporations as gray faceless corporations who had gotten fat on the war fat on my sweat and the blood of my comrades uh, he's he's not happy with this going on it's just a depressing existence and he has a bunch of failed farming ventures he goes into farming is hard in case people aren't aware of this it, it is Farming is a very, very hard Yeah, process, very, very difficult job. Especially cash crops. Mm-hmm. If they fail, it's like there's so much investment that goes into crops, cash crops. We're talking like tobacco, especially. Yeah. The livestock, too. It takes forever. Yeah. I don't think he does any livestock work. His, his stuff is mostly tobacco farms. Yeah. And it's just, it is hard. And he has like one or two failures. Uh, there's an incident where, where there's like a controlled burn, mm-hmm. right? Which is pretty common. Far- farming and stuff is like controlled burn sometimes. And it gets out of control. Unfortunately, it ruins an entire like investment opportunity, and he's screwed. So he goes through a lot of this. He kind of has these like crazy ups and downs, where he'll be very, very successful, and then he'll be very, very uh, unsuccessful. And the whole time, he's popping pills, taking drugs, really just starting to lose himself. And uh, he he like says, I don't think he outright declares himself as having. PTSD per se because it all is you know it's just so complex and how it manifests in people but he it does give him a lot of profound mental issues that eventually lead to him abandoning his family entirely screwing up yet another crazy business venture losing everything declaring bankruptcy putting a gun into his mouth and uh well ultimately ends up in a psych ward in Harare right right back to the beginning of the book and that's that's what brings the book full circle it's it's a, it's very dramatic it's a, it's a slow burn right up until the end right and there's no the book isn't intended to have the, there's no explosion at the end like there is in Hollywood right there's no like grand battle no there and there's no and, and in the same way i mean i guess hollywood now will show you like a whimpered death Right, and it's not it, like there's no whimper, whimpering death and decay and hiding in a corner and giving up at the end of this, right? Um, I think the final message that I got out of the book, and uh, we, we're not going to read that specific excerpt from the book, but it's it's just like it's Chris telling a story, and he's just like, I have gotten back at baseline now mm-hmm. without the need for drugs. I am still, like, maybe not a good person sometimes, but all I can do is, like, try to be good. And that's, that's like, the message at the end of all this. And just in the same way that the war progressed and, you know, all the politicians, you know, all the leadership are dead. And only, you know, these, these young men that fought remain, right? And all Chris has done is kind of fight now for himself to get back at baseline. And he's just like, I'm, I'm just doing what I can. This isn't a tribute to the dead, uh, it's it's like a tribute to the living, right? That still that still fight and carry on as per normal, right? It's like you said in uh, our podcast in Afghanistan. You got to keep riding that pony. Yep, exactly. I think the best way to conclude is there is a quote that Chris includes at the beginning of the book by Guy Sayer from the book The Forgotten Soldier. 
Too many people learn about war with no inconvenience to themselves. They read about Verdun or Stalingrad without comprehension, sitting in a comfortable armchair, with their feet beside the fire, preparing to go about their business the next day as usual. One should really read such accounts under compulsion, in discomfort, considering oneself fortunate not to be describing the events in a letter home, writing from a hole in the mud. One should read about war in the worst circumstances, remembering that the torments of peace are trivial and not worth any white hairs. Nothing is really serious in the tranquility of peace. Only an idiot could be really disturbed by a question of salary. One should read about war standing up late at night when one is tired as I am writing about it now, at dawn, while my asthma attack wears off. And even now in my sleepless exhaustion, how gentle and easy peace seems. Those who read about Verdun or Stalingrad and expound theories later to friends over a cup of coffee haven't understood anything. Those who can read such accounts with a silent smile, smile as they walk, and feel lucky to be alive. I feel kind of called out, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you can. I don't know. We're recording this in a pretty hot room. That's true. I was, I was late today because it was like a crazy road accident. And, uh, we're both pretty tired. We had a long last night. I don't know. I wouldn't say we're exactly comfortable, and this wasn't comfortable reading. That's true. Yeah. Like Fire Force, I felt was not. I don't. I it didn't exactly glorify war, but it was high octane. It was high energy. It was like you know, call out, call out, call out. And it's all these like engagements and incredible like men and tactics and thought processes and sophistication and it's it's a part of it's a part of history that i that really resonates with me after you know my docs and stuff i'm like reducing history is cool so it's just reading fire force rereading it is just like wow this is like this is is great and there's there's like disturbing moments in there this this whole book is not comfortable reading correct there's there are like those moments of high octane, um, but there's also the moments of just losing lo- lo- losing lucidity, losing control, and they feel very real. And it's uh, yeah, I, I can't say I was ever comfortable reading. There's no like, oh, we get a break, you know. The comic relief character has shown up. No, yeah. like even like any time there's like a little bit of comic relief in their lives that he goes through it's all like very temporary and it's all rooted from like deep depression or or fear or anxiety right it's it's just all these negative emotions wrapped up into a ball and it causes ultimately like this grinding tension that uh finally explodes in a not super dramatic way even though he does have a gun to his mouth at one point but he just yeah, it's just a constant grinding tension. Even throughout, after, like, as he's talking about his experience in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So definitely want to read, guys. Uh, highly, highly recommend it. Uh, Chris Cox, again, survival course. Survival course being the course of survival, not like... Because that was another confusion point of confusion. Because out of action yeah. is, like, an easier title to... Yeah. Grasp. A lot of people think survival course. They think, oh, you just like. Well, they, no, they think like, oh, it's like the like the sell a suck out collection yeah, yeah, selection yeah. course. But no, this is I, about like a guy actually. Yeah, surviving. that's what I thought this book was. I thought it was like he was going to talk about like surviving like RLI training or something, and then you're like, no, you have to like actually read this. So I was like, okay, yeah, no, I'll read it because I didn't realize it was out of action until we talked physically. We actually talked to Chris, and mm-hmm. then we're like, oh crap like that's well, this is like 
had to. So, um, no, I, but I get it after like reading it and thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And it's, uh, it's, it's quite the read. It, it's well worth it to read Fire Force first because a lot of people kind of get mentioned again. Um, and, uh, you know, Fire Force definitely is like a tribute to the men. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, this is Chris talking about himself really and, and what, what he goes through. Uh, so again, and it's a tribute to living. It's a tribute at the end of the day to like we just we just have to truck on, and try to find our baseline and not not burn our bridges because he burns you know a lot of bridges towards the end through the drug use and kind of just the rage, right? It, mm-hmm. And and the coldness towards other people that he develops as you know kind of need that in combat, but bringing it back to the civilian world and at the same time losing lucidity is not good. So uh, thank you again, guys, for listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast. Yet again, after our very long five-month hiatus, hopefully we won't take one that long again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, the, the whole pre-order shenanigan business with Fire Force took way longer than planned, but the future of that business looks very bright in the great state of De- Texas, somewhere along the Oklahoma border. Again, don't forget to check out Canada Camo my Canadian venture, the Canadian replacement of Fire Force Ventures. It's operating right now because Fire Force Ventures isn't back yet. And it definitely won't be back by the time we release this podcast. It might be back like in the future. Or today's what, 12th or 13th? 12th of October is when we're recording this. So 12th of October today, we are not uh, not going to be ready for Fire Force for a few days or a few weeks at least. But Canada Camo is up, my, my Canadian replacement. So, again, that's camis.ca. Check it out. Got some cool milserp and the newly launched Tactical Plaid, which is very exciting. Uh, check Youper. out Uper. Uper, Uper, Uper. Very, very Uper. Um, also, Commando Blog, also revamping after a very long hiatus. They had their own shenanigans they had to deal with, but they're back in full swing looking for writers. Uh, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, or sorry, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, rather, yep. that they are looking for writers, so if you want to write for them, uh, anything firearms related, again, that's firearms, fitness, combat medicine, gear, military, lifestyle, video games, or anime, uh, give a email, actually, to Don, D-O-N, at commandoblog.com. They're probably going to have a separate editor email, but for now, it, it works. Just send an email to dawn at commandoblog.com. Again, that's commando with the K, as mm-hmm. in slash K. Uh, K-O-M-M-A-N-D-O blog.com. So dawn at commandoblog.com. Or if you just want to read and check out cool articles, uh, they're, they're all going to be doing some video production stuff as well. Check out commandoblog.com. Uh, merch store. Yeah, no. Uh... Please... Please buy mug. Please buy mug. Yeah, no, yeah, we we do have the really cool Rhodesian line horn mugs, guys. And by the time this is up, we will have signed copies of this book. Yes, yes. and uh, Fire Force stocked as well. So those are both great reads. We highly recommend. Signed those. by Chris Cox. Signed by Mr. Chris Cox. And a special shout out to Mr. Chris Cox for yes. his continued support of this podcast and for telling us his story and survival course. Uh, we'll hopefully be recording a podcast with him in the new year. That'll be really cool to do. And special thanks as well to our subscribers uh, on Subscribestar and all the members of our Fire Force Ventures Buyers Club. Thank you for supporting us in our your 
Thank you for supporting us in our efforts. Your dollars go a long way here um, and help us do everything that we do as well. Uh, thank you to all those that are actually serving. Your dollars here and there go a long way, perhaps more than you know. And to all those actively serving in the military as law enforcement or other first responders to include firefighters, including bush firefighters, EMTs, paramedics, dispatchers, and all the rest, thank you for doing what you do so we can do what we do, which is just record a podcast. You lot are really the men among men out there. So again, thank you. Also, we have a very special podcast coming up very soon, a special Halloween podcast that will be released just a few days before the big spooky day, and uh, yeah, you guys should really check that out. So pull up, grab a chibouli, and we'll catch you guys next time.